0: In the backup, and the backup, the thought crossed my mind, how many backups will we have to go through to get to Brother Stanley? That just, probably a lot before we finally got there, but praise God for that, um, and praise God we're able to, to sing about the amazing love of our Savior for us. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open with me today to the book of Nahum. Uh, the book of Nahum is in the Old Testament Minor Prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, so just uh, if you have to use your table of contents, there's no shame in that whatsoever for this book, but welcome to week seven of our Come Back to Me series where we are walking through the 12 minor prophets which make up, of course, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and when we say minor, we mean shorter, not lesser, not less important, Um, and just like the major prophets, the, the minor prophets are a record of God declaring blessings for obedience as well as punishment for disobedience and he's doing this all through his prophets and although these 12 books that we are walking through um, are oftentimes skipped over by us, um, they reveal in a beautiful way the heart of God over his wayward and over his rebellious people. So if we want to know how God feels about the rebellious and the wayward we read the minor prophets and we read God calling his people, come back to me. This morning we come back, or we come to the book of Nahum, and just to kind of make a transition here, how many of you um, remember or had an experience sometime in your childhood with a playground bully? Any, so a few of us had that moment. They, they, were, they were big, they were tough, they enjoyed pushing other kids around. Everyone was afraid of them, even the teachers um, were afraid of them because they were just bad. And uh, so we have those experiences um, where in our childhood of bullies, it seemed absolutely um, invincible. And I'm just going to be honest with you. To this day, uh, the person who used to bully me at school still takes my lunch money. Uh, on the plus side, she makes great Subway sandwiches. So that that really helps. Some of you will get that way later on. But when we think about bullies, um, Assyria was the bully of the Middle East, um, the conqueror of many nations, including Israel. This nation's power, um, epitomized by Nineveh, the capital city, was the power was awesome. power was overwhelming. And God responded to Nineveh by sending prophets. And I I say prophets. Prophets. Plural. And let me just ask a question this morning, and I won't expect you to give me the answer unless you just know it. Um, Do you know which two books of the Bible end with questions? Both are minor prophets with Na, N A H, in their names. Both are right under 50 verses, one at 48, one at 47. One tells the story of God's mercy towards Nineveh, that is Jonah, and one tells the story of God's vengeance. I'm promised towards Nineveh, and that is Nahum. Both quote the same phrase from Exodus 34, God is slow to anger as the reason why these events occur. And so what we know is that in Jonah, God spares Nineveh because his anger is slow to erupt. But in Nahum, Nineveh is pronounced as being in the crosshairs of God's wrath, and Nineveh would go down. So Nahum, who comes from a town that we can't even find on the map, and we're about to read it, a town called Elkosh, um, was telling the biggest city in the known world at the time that they would soon be wiped off the map. So this guy from a place we can't find on the map was telling this huge city "You will be wiped off the map. And so ultimately God uses two different prophets, Jonah and Nahum, to bring two different messages, one good news, um, one bad news, because of this. While, while Nineveh was changing... They were changing for the good and then they changed back for the bad. Um, God had not changed. In fact, God was the same. And let me just say this to us this morning. It does us good to be reminded that God is still God and that God gets the last word over every situation. God gets the last word. Evil empires and nations and people and even evil diseases do not get the last word. God gets the last word in every situation over every circumstance. So this morning in looking at the book of of Nahum and seeing a very dark picture um, painted by the prophet, we're also going to see the heart of God over his people, and this is kind of the continual theme in the prophets. the The picture is bleak; it is dark, yet it shows us God's heart. And we're going to even see in this um, first chapter the character of God on display. So let's let's dive in together. Let's see how God can give us comfort in the midst of um, distress, because ultimately the name Nahum means comforter. That God is trying to give comfort to His people, even through this bleak, difficult. Um, picture. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. If you aren't able, just stand in your heart. We'll count that beginning at verse 1. We're just going to read the first chapter of Nahum and it says this, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. Let me say that again for those following along at home. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries. And He will pursue His enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are... "...consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength... And many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountain the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we are looking at a very dark picture for a wicked nation, a a nation who lived in rebellion against you. But yet in the midst of this, Father, there is comfort because you are a good and comforting refuge for your people. Today, God, just show us that in a fresh and a new way. Show us your character as seen um, in this book. Show us, God, your wrath, and show us, Father, your comfort, Lord, in ways that just um, make us, Lord, even in in a greater sense, Father, just draw near to you and in a greater sense tell people of the comfort and the refuge that you give and that you are. Lord, just speak to your people through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, and we may be Seated, So again, Nahum is sort of um, Jonah the sequel. So it's the sequel to the book of, of Jonah. So what we know, sometime around 760 B.C., God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach repentance and hope um, to the Assyrian people. Over a hundred years have passed since then. And what we know is this, children and grandchildren were born. New kings ascended to the throne um, in the Assyrian Empire. And you can guess what happened to that repentance. The people repented from their repentance. So they turned from their turning from sin and turned back to it. So the the time of, of sorrow over evil under Jonah, where the people repented... Um, became a hiccup in the, in the legacy of, of oppression and brutality, meaning that the people of Nineveh, their cruelty increased. They once again sought to capture and to torture um, and to enslave other nations, all the while ignoring God. So Assyria, during this time, attacked and completely conquered Israel. They also invaded Judah and overran all of their outlying towns. And just think about this. God had earlier revealed Um, to Moses in Exodus 34, and revealed himself in this way, the Lord, the Lord God, a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Meaning this, Jonah dwells on the first side of God's character, his mercy and grace towards the people of Nineveh. Whereas Nahum is called to give a different message, a message where God will by no means clear the guilty. It's a hard message. It's a difficult message. I'm sure there's times where Nahum would have said, God, why can't I just tell him what, what Jonah told him? Why do I have to give this message? But Nahum was true to the word of God. So this morning we're going to focus on three truths about God that rise up from the book of of Nahum And I pray that these truths will just meet us in, in, in different ways, all for his glory. The first is this, Nahum reveals the character of God. So Nahum reveals to us the character of God. So let's start here. Although the essential nature of God is incomprehensible, we cannot get to the bottom of who God is. God has through His Word, declared certain things to be true of Himself. So through the Word of God, God has declared certain things to be true of Himself. We call these things attributes. And these attributes reveal the character of God. And just think about how this plays out um, in in, uh, Nahum chapter 1. And remember here, number one, when we're walking through these minor prophets, we're not trying to bring every detail um, to our attention. Because we would it would take um, probably a few years to go through all of these books and do it that way. What we are instead doing is just trying to take some of the things that rise up from the top and just really hit those. So a few of the characteristics or the attributes that really rise up concerning God in the first chapter of Nahum are these. Number one, God is jealous. Look at verse two. The Lord is jealous. Je- uh, jealous and avenging God. He is jealous. No one, no, no one in this room, I pray, would want to be described as being jealous. But jealousy is a good thing if we're talking about God's jealousy. Unlike us, God is, is jealous for his own glory, and this is good news for his people. I, I would, never thought I would reference this person, but here we go. Oprah Winfrey, strangely enough, um, is an example of someone who left traditional Christianity because of this attribute of God. In describing being in a church service where the preacher was talking about the attributes of God, mainly his omnipotence and omnipresence, and then she says this, Then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was called up in the rapture of that moment until he said the word jealous. And something struck me. I was 27 or 28 and I was thinking God is all. God is omnipresent, but God is jealous. A jealous God is jealous of me. And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. Meaning that she's a, she believes in pantheism. And if you just take that out and you'll realize what a false gospel that is. But just think about where she's coming from. I moved away from traditional Christianity because of that. And then think about this. In Exodus 34, 14, God says, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In other words, God demands that you and I give all of our worship to Him. Amen. He demands it. If we give our worship to any other um, any other but Him, He is jealous. And if we don't repent, He will break forth and um Punishment over us. Think about Deuteronomy twenty or four twenty four. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What a picture! And we know there's a negative, even a a sinful kind of jealousy. That is the kind that we often um, struggle with. But we also see in Scripture a God like kind of of jealousy, a God honoring type of jealousy. And, this isn't an insecure jealousy that we're talking about here where God is worried that we're going to find somebody better than him. So God is like, please don't go looking there because you might find someone better than me and I don't want you to do that. That's not what we're talking about. Understand this. God knows who he is. And God is not worried that we'll ever find anyone better because God knows there are none better than him. So God knows that. God is not jealous in that way. God is not biting his fingernails going maybe just maybe they'll find someone god knows that everything else that we replace him with whether it be relationships stuff achievements god knows that those things can't compare with him he knows that so the point is god is he's jealous for our devotion the devotion of our hearts god wants it because he's worthy of it He's worthy of it. He knows he's worthy of it. So God is jealous. Secondly, God is avenging and wrathful. Look at verses 2 and 6. It says the Lord is jealous and avenging. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies. Verse 6, in the middle it says his wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces before him. It's not popular for us to talk about the wrath of God. Even in Christian circles, it's not popular. We want a God who is like us. We want a God who makes us feel good about ourselves. However, if God is holy, if God is just, then God must punish sin. If He's holy and just, He has to punish sin. And we'll unpack that a little bit in in just a minute. But God is avenging and wrathful. Then Number three, God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Look at verse three. The Lord is... Slow to anger. The love of God. The love of God does not cancel out the anger of God. But it does slow it down. Let me say it again. The love of God does not cancel out the anger of God. But it does slow down His anger. Let me just kind of walk boldly here. It's a wicked and a twisted idea that says that God's love is is supposed to cancel out his anger. That's a twisted and wicked idea. People are quick to say, well, God is love, as if um, because God is love, he won't punish sin. And the, the picture is, that is a false belief. For God is holy, therefore he must punish sin. But thankfully, God is slow to anger. Just think about that. Where would we be right now if God were not slow to anger? Where would we be? If God were quick to anger, we would have been cast away already. Would we, we would be totally separated for all of eternity from God if He were not slow to anger. There should be praise in our hearts for that truth. He is slow to anger. And then verses 3 through 6, number 4, God is powerful. He's powerful. It says that the Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power power. And I love how this character trait is placed right alongside of his slowness and his patience. And what Nahum does, he paints the picture. We won't read them all, but in verse three, God has power over the, the sky. In fact, as dust is um, happens when our feet walk, so the clouds are dust to, to him. He has power in verse four over the seas. He has power in verses five through six over the whole earth. God is Great in power. And then verse five, or number five, God is good. He's good and he cares. Verse seven, again, we're going to come back to this even again. The Lord is good. And I, I read something this week that really struck me and I'll just give it to you and let you kind of consider this. Goodness to God is whatever he wants it to be. Goodness to God is whatever God wants it to be. Not what, what, what we think is good, but what God thinks is good. And sometimes, here's what I know, what I think is good doesn't, doesn't, or the things that God declares as good don't feel good to me. They don't feel good. They feel terrible at times, yet God, through his word, through his promises, is working it for good. And think about this, when we think about the goodness of God, it's something that we affirm happily when things are going good in our lives. But it's something that we don't say much when things are bad. Right. I got a promotion. Praise God. God is good. I got I got diagnosed with cancer. Praise God. God is good. God healed my relative from being sick in the ICU. Praise God. God is good. But God also took my loved one to be in his presence. Praise God. God is good. He is good. He's good in all that he does. Praise God for his goodness towards us. So just think about the character of God. Um, A.W. Tozer says this concerning God's character The history of mankind will probably show that no religion has ever been greater than their idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is what he, in his deep heart, conceives God to be like. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Were we able to answer the question, what comes into our mind when we think about God, we might predict with certainty where the church will stand tomorrow. Without doubt, the mightiest thought that that the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and to elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him. Brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that our idea of God that we, When we would say, I don't believe God is jealous, or I don't believe God is this or that, what that does is that tries to bring God down to our level. Instead, we need to trust and believe the Word of God and allow God to be elevated. Allow God to be who He is. So Nahum declares that picture of the character of God, but then secondly, Nahum declares the curse of God. He declares the curse of God, which is going to sound kind of strange to us, but just look with me. In verses 2 and 3, it says, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. He keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of His feet. Or just look at chapter 2, verse 13. In chapter 2, verse 13 it says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. Or look at chapter 3, verse 5, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. So the message of Nahum is that God will totally destroy, totally devastate, totally humiliate the people of Nineveh. They would be wiped off of the map. They would be erased um, from existence by God. So God would completely exterminate them. And I know, let me just say this, many people don't like seeing God in this way. Yet, let me just make it clear, God is not like us. God's not like us. And assuming that God should be like us reveals our own ignorance. We are tempted sometimes to project our humanity on God. So we assume that God's wrath is just like us having, or our kids having, a temper tantrum. So when we read that God is mean and and bad and mad in the Bible, we just view God as having a temper tantrum because that's the way we see it. But here's the thing, God's wrath, as explained in the Bible, is perfect and holy. It's so different from our sinful anger as night is from day. So when God kills someone in the Bible, sometimes we can't accept that because we say, well, it would be wrong for me to kill somebody. So how is it right for God to kill somebody? And what makes it right is the one who gives life has the power to take away life. We live in a culture where we work hard to establish parity. We work hard to establish equality. And those things can be really, really good. But when we project that towards the heavens and say, God, you have to play by the same rules that we play by, that isn't, isn't good. Why? Because he's God. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to. And he doesn't, have to, he doesn't owe us an explanation at all. You know, we see, sing songs, and I, I love when we sing, we'll understand it better by and by. But some things that we're going to understand by and by is that the things that we were so concerned about don't matter. That's one of the things we're going to understand. Now, other things God will explain to us and we'll be like, oh, I never saw it that way before. But other things that we say, I can't wait to ask God this. We're going to just put our hand over our mouth and say, I have no need. I have no need for he is God. Here's what I, I do know. I do know that uh, Genesis eighteen twenty five will forever be true. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And he will. I read something this week that really opened my mind, and I pray it will open yours as well. By saying this, oftentimes our view of God, or the God that we come up with, is kind of like—and and this might upset some of us—but just imagine your mind, or just imagine my mind, being the size of a coke can. So, my mind, the size of a coke can, and then imagine all that God is being—all of the waters on the world, in the world, all the waters on Earth. So, my coke can. All the water on earth is God. And then imagine me going to different places and picking little sweet water that, that tastes good, and me putting a little bit here, a little bit there, and a little bit there of a little sweetness that I like uh, of the water, and then filling my can up and saying, This is God. Can you imagine how ridiculous that would be? He is all of the water, and here I am with my little can going, This is God. So what should we do instead? Instead, by humility, we should poke holes into our can. We should throw it in the depths of the ocean. And we should allow all that God is to go in and out of us and trust Him in every way that God reveals Himself to us. That is how we should respond to Him. But let's let's quickly get back to the enemies of God. So back to Nineveh. Back to the people who were under God's curse. The Ninevites were known as the cruelest people in the ancient world. We, we talked about that when we talked through Jonah. They plundered, they oppressed, they slaughtered their victims. They boasted in their histories of how cruel they were. This week I was looking through some hieroglyphics of um, pictures of how Nineveh responded to their enemies and some of the cruelest pictures you could ever see. Just cruelty of how they treated their enemies. In fact, Nineveh's heinous, heinous methods are likened to a, the pride of a ravaging lion. Nahum even describes them in this way. Chapter 2, verse 12. He describes him as a lion who's filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. This is what the Assyrians and Ninevites were famous for. Yet think about this. God is not intimidated by any nation. God is not intimidated by any king. Even kingdoms that seem impenetrable, God is not scared of. In fact, think about Assyria. It was the great power in that region for all of the 8th century, most of the 7th century. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh. It was one of the grandest, most powerful cities on earth. In fact, its size, its power, its wealth inspires so many different fables. At least two series of walls went on around Nineveh for miles upon miles. The inside wall was 100 feet tall, was so wide, three chariots could raise across it at the same time on the outside of the wall there was a moat that was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep so just think about this Nineveh felt completely secure in their rebellion they were rebelling against God and they felt completely secure there yet the point of Nahum is is made most explicit in the last verse of chapter 2 and the 5th verse of chapter 3 when God says this I am against you I'm against you. Let me just kind of flesh this out. It doesn't matter what you have going for you if God is against you. It doesn't matter who's on your side if God is not on your side. If God is for you, who can be against you? But if God is against you, nothing can be for you. Nothing can be for you. So just just think about that picture. Think about that reality. In fact, no king has any power other than the power that God gives it. No nation has any power over, other than the power that God gives to it. Success does not hide sin from God's sight. So Nineveh, this prideful, arrogant um, capital of the Assyrian Empire, according to the word of God, would be destroyed. Just think about this. In chapter 1, verse 8, Nahum says that Nineveh would end with an overflowing flood. And it happened when the Tigris River overflowed and destroyed just enough of the wall for the Babylonians to break through. Nahum also predicts in chapter 3, verse 11, that this city would be hidden. Here's what we know, that after the destruction of Nineveh in 612 B.C., that Nineveh would not be discovered again until 1842 A.D. God keeps his word. And as we hear things like that, we're tempted to question, is God good? We hear about these bad things. But remember Nahum 1, 3. The Lord is slow to anger and he is great in power. And what I mean by that is this. Difficult texts about God's judgment and his wrath are not at odds with his mercy and grace. In fact, the texts are necessary for us to understand his mercy and grace rightly. If we don't understand what we're saved from, we'll never understand on um, the picture of His grace and His mercy towards us. And yet, strangely enough, strangely enough, the curse that we're talking about can also lead to comfort. That's the third truth. Nahum emphasizes the, the comfort of God. Now, how in the world can those two go together because God can put them together? So here's what we know. 98% of this book is about judgment, battle, Fury, wrath, and righteous anger against a wicked people. Nahum is a brutal prophecy. Yet, because Nahum means comforter, here is what we know: the book is meant to comfort God's people. And, and what may be the key verse of the whole book? We're reminded, "The Lord is good." Again, the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those He knows those who take refuge in. Him, the people of God, the people of Judah were going through a horrendous time. Maybe that's you right now, going through a horrendous time of life. And yet they were being challenged by God and by the prophet to take refuge in God. They were being asked to trust God even in the midst of suffering. Clearly, refuge doesn't mean health, wealth and prosperity because that ship had sailed for Judah. But what refuge means is something that only God can provide. Nahum gives us a picture of God as a comforter. And although we might look through the book of Nahum and say, how is the world is God comforting? If we don't see God's comfort. Here's what we know. God is a comforting God and He will protect those who take refuge in Him. He will protect those who trust in Him. So Nineveh once again, Again, that the object of God, or at once the object of God's mercy would now become the object of God's wrath. In the final chapter, look at chapter 3, verse 11. In the final chapter, chapter 3, verse 11, listen to what God says again to the people of Nineveh You also will be drunken, you will go into hiding, and you will seek refuge from the enemy. God tells them that they would be drunk. And what that means all throughout Scripture in a a great sense is that they would be required to drink the cup that was filled with the wrath of God. They would be drunk on God's wrath. Because of their sin, because of their rebellion, they would fall. And they would receive the just punishment from God. But where's the good news? Where's the comfort? Here it is. Christ drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that we don't have to. That's the comfort for us today, brothers and sisters. When Jesus prayed in the garden, and we just sang that earlier, when he prayed, my father, not my will, but yours be done. May this cup pass from me. He was speaking of having to drink a cup that was filled with the wrath of God that was um, meant to be drunk by sinners. Jesus committed no sin by which he should even have to hold the cup, let alone drink the cup. Yet he drank the cup for your sin and for mine, so that if we repent, if we turn to Him, if we trust Him as Savior and Lord, His wrath would never touch us because it touched Him. Think about this. In the New Testament, God's judgment fell fell most harshly and most sharply, not on a city, not on a nation, not on a people, but upon Jesus In fact, we are told that through his death on the cross, Christ, according to Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And here's what this means for us in closing. And that gives you a little bit of hope that we're about to end. In closing, what this means is because of our sin, every single one of us in this room were at one time, or maybe even now, under the, the curse of God's judgment and we needed his mercy. We are right now, listen to this, we are not in the state of Nineveh from Nahum's point of view where divine judgment is assured or guaranteed to us. We are even now in the time of Nineveh in Jonah's day where there is still hope for us. Where there's still hope for us if we will repent. There's still hope for those who don't know Christ if they will repent and turn to Him for His mercy. This comes when we see that God has given us the greatest comfort and we look at the cross, see what Jesus has done for us and we take comfort in that. Let me just say this, if you are here today apart from Christ, let me remind you of God's slowness to anger. In fact, we're going to put it on the screen, 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. It says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing or wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Let me say this again. God is not willing that any should perish. God's not willing that any should perish. But the day of the Lord is coming. God's not willing. What does that mean? What does it mean when we say God's not willing that any should perish? And here's what it means. It means no one wants you to escape God's wrath more than God does. No one wants you to escape his wrath more than he does. Hell was not made for us. It was made for Satan and his demons, not for us. But we have to make a choice. Will we come to him on his terms or will we reject him on our terms? One of the most unusual Supreme Court cases, the United States versus uh, George Wilson. In 1830, George Wilson pled guilty for essentially grand theft and assault. In June of 1830 President Andrew Jackson issued a pardon to Wilson, but Wilson for undisclosed reasons refused the pardon. It actually went to the Supreme Court to which they ruled this a pardon must be received in order to be valid. It is an act of grace that cannot be forced. If received or if unreceived, it is not valid. So grace can only be valid if it is received. God's mercy can only be valid if we will receive it. And here's a sad picture today. We all know people, maybe even some that sit among us, who will die and experience the wrath of God because they have rejected his mercy. They have rejected his grace because they would not receive his pardon. No one wants you to escape God's grace more than or God's wrath more than God does. But the gospel is only good news if you respond to it in time. It's only good news if we respond to it in time. May we heed the words of Nahum to the wicked people of Nineveh, knowing that God's wrath is coming. But also may we find comfort knowing that all those who take refuge in him can be guaranteed there is comfort there, there is safety there, there is salvation there, and there is eternal security there. May we find ourselves there today. and May we find ourselves longing for those who don't know him to come to know him before it is too late. If you can go ahead and stand with me, I'm going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward as we enter into a time of invitation and, and consecration where basically we say whatever the Lord is telling us to do, that we would, we would do it as we pray together. Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for your word, God, even the difficult parts of it that we don't like to hear. We thank you that you are so good, so gracious, so merciful, so loving, yet you are also just. You are avenging, you are jealous, you are wrathful, you are powerful. You are slow to anger, you are great in mercy, but you will by no means clear the guilty. We thank you that you have made a way for us who are guilty to be declared not guilty through your son, Jesus. God, I pray even now for any that's in this room or will be in this room that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord that today would be the day of salvation. May today be the day of salvation. God, may today be the day that you help us to to realize that there are some people that we know, or maybe even sitting among us or in our families or friends or neighbors that don't know you. They have never come to you on. On your terms, and because of that, they are not awaiting salvation. They are awaiting your wrath. God, help us, Lord, to care enough about them to tell them, to warn them, to point them to your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your salvation. To point them to the fact that no one, no one wants us to be delivered from your wrath more than you do. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you, God, for filling us with your Spirit and for giving us a a mission to tell others. God, help us to live our lives doing doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.